Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Hello, friends. I'm very, very happy to invite you on a conversation that has sparked so many great ideas for me and has left me with a deep food for thought, which I hope will happen to you too as you listen to it. This one is with one of my favorite researchers in the space of vertical development, Nick Petrie. I've come across Nick's work when I was barely starting my own research and desperately looking for people who are bridging the academic space and the practical space um, and really taking this work into the space of organizations. And Nick has been a pioneer in doing that bridging. His white paper on the makings of a developmental program has informed my and I'm sure many others research. Unlike other guests on the podcast, I haven't actually had a proper conversation with Nick before recording this one. So I knew him mostly from reading his research and following his work online, but I was not at all disappointed. Uh, His in-person presence and authenticity and the vulnerability with which he is sharing his own developmental journey and what has led him to doing this work has touched me and just confirmed the depth and wisdom of the researcher that I had been guessing through reading his work. A little bit about Nick. He is a researcher and a speaker on leadership, resilience and burnout prevention. He's a New Zealander with significant international experience and has lived and worked in the US, Europe, Asia and the Middle East and Scandinavia. His clients include Google, Walmart, NASA, Delta and Novartis. Nick has worked globally across industries including healthcare, tech, banking, education, energy, law and television. He holds a master's degree from Harvard University and is the author of the book Work Without Stress, Building Resilience for Long-Term Success. To learn more about Nick and his work, you can visit his website, which I have put in the show notes. I won't stand between you and what I hope will be a very enlightening conversation. And I'll uh, see you on the other side. Welcome. I'm super excited to have you on the Developmental Podcast. It um, feels like a nerdy dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Alice. I've been following your work and uh, finding it very interesting. So I'm happy we're able to connect. Yeah, me too. I I feel like I've been stalking you (laughs) a little bit um, uh, for quite some time now because you've, uh, you've been a silent companion on my research over the last almost five years. Uh, I think you've, yeah, you've done so much groundbreaking work to bridge the worlds um, of vertical development and business and learning and growth in so many ways. So super grateful for all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's, uh, this conversation is really an invitation to go down the rabbit hole um, in possibly a nerdy way or not, uh, hopefully making some of this accessible, which I know you're really good at doing, um, making this potentially theoretical. It's so easy for the vertical development and adult development work to be very become very theoretical and conceptual. 
And I think there's so much gold in translating and making it practical and actionable. So mm. I'd love to, you know, explore how you even do that and how you ended up uh, doing that, being that kind of translator and yeah, see yeah. where it takes it from there. Yeah. I think it came from painful early experiences. <laughs> motivated me to do it in a way which people could understand because it was just it was just too uncomfortable to have these experiences where it was disconnecting so i think mm -hmm. that's what I did quite early actually like make if you're going to do something think about the audience and how they need to hear it don't get caught in your way of doing things yeah so do you feel like um and if you if you'd be willing to share a little bit of what the story is because I think it's always interesting and particularly with researchers how mm -hmm. we end up being truly passionate about the stuff we end up researching and devoting so much energy and time and mm -hmm. yeah devotion almost to so yeah what was your journey with with adult development how did you come across it how did you become so passionate about this topic mm -hmm. um well, really, in my 20s, I played rugby for a living. I played professionally around the world. And so it was really interesting. It was a certain sort of lifestyle, and I was playing in different countries. And then when I was in Japan, I got sort of sick. My my red blood cell count went really low. Um, I was having different troubles. I came back to New Zealand, and when I got back, um, I was quite sick. My mother took me to hospital, and they did these tests. They couldn't work it. Out what it was they did this operation it turned out it was cancer and so they did this big operation that took me three months before I could start eating again um and I sort of I just had to decide what do you do with this situation um and it was quite a serious type and I the, what I decided to do was just sort of try and put it out of my head and go back to Japan. All I wanted to do was just go back and put my old life back together in the same way. So I did that. And my big thing was just putting on weight again. I was a rugby player and I'd lost over 30 kg, I think. And so that was my only goal, put on weight again. And then, so I did that. And then 12 months later, you have another scan and the oncologist said it's come back. It's spread to your liver. Uh, we don't have a treatment. Um, and then, so that was like shocking. And then I, um, they found a treatment and they did it, but they said it's a temporary one. And, you know, there's no chemo or there's no radiation or surgery or anything else we can do. And they just said, just go back and do what you want to do. So I was like, the second time I was just like, shit, mm -hmm. I, I can't just go back and do that. I did that last time and it came back. Uh, what am I going to do? And so I spent a lot of time reflecting, which I didn't do the first time, on <laughs> on life, really. Yeah. Was, the question I was asking myself was, what really matters? And I, so I'd never really thought about that before. What really matters? I thought, well, do I make lots of money? And I thought, well, do that and then you get cancer. And what does that matter? What's the point of making money? Is it... To be famous, and I was like, "How's that gonna matter?" And I just, no matter, I just kept asking and asking, and I just couldn't come up with a good answer. And in the end, I was in Spain by this point, and it started to dawn on me. The answer I came to was in my sort of late twenties: is to live a meaningful life. Um, 
you're measured at the end, I felt, by how much you've contributed. Have you contributed something worthwhile with what you've got? And that's sort of what I landed on, and it felt right. And then the question was, well, how do you do that? And I thought, I'll go out and I'll volunteer my time, no costs to do these different things. So I went and did that, and what I discovered is no one wanted my time. (laughs) (laughs) I had nothing to offer. I had no particular skills, I had no particular knowledge, nothing in particular, but I'll give my time for free. And that was a big uh, half of me is um, you actually need to fill yourself up with something first. Um, what You've got to grow yourself, you've got to develop yourself so you've got something valuable to offer if that's what you want to do and you make a contribution. So that's sort of where it started and I started trying to work out, well, what do I want to offer? And so I started doing a lot of reading one person I read was Ken Wilber, and I just read that book, and I was just like, why has no one told me about this before? Look at what he's mm-hmm. saying. I remember showing it to my brother and showing it to different people, and they were just what like. Struck you? What struck you about Wilber's work, Nick? What resonated with you? Um, I just remember reading and go, yes, that, exactly. I mean, I didn't know it that consciously, but you just read it, and I could just connect with it. I was like. And it was this idea of development, like mm-hmm. we, that we grow and it, we grow in this way. And I was like, yes. Um, so I was really struck by, and there was just everything he was writing. I was like, oh my God, someone knows all this. Someone's worked out all this. Um, so I was very interested in that. And then I was, so, and I just started to think, where could you do this sort of thing? And I didn't really know as a rugby player. And I started to think, I think it's, I've seen people who do these trainings and things like that. And so I just went in that direction. I had some good coincidences and met up with some people and ended up in, in this field um, and so, sort of joined a training company. And that's that's where it sort of began. I was in the right space. So I, hadn't, I don't think I'd really properly got on to vertical development yet, but I was in the right arena. To discover it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what? What? If it's, I mean, people who are passionate about, you know, adult development, I think it's already common knowledge that this developmental continuum seems to be triggered by big life challenges. When something life presents you with something where your mind just can't make sense of it with your current frame, and you can refuse the lesson or embrace the lesson, which it sounds to me like you did both and kind of almost what happens after you get into the right arena? Because that's something I hear people talking a lot about. You know, you can't just wait for life to to slap you and, and kind of wake you up or push you into your next state. Sometimes you just have to go looking for your own discomfort to be able to keep on growing. I'm curious if that shifted for you in any way or your attitude towards how you grab your learning or what, what you do to continue growing yeah. uh, post that major, major shake-up, life-changing yeah. event. Yeah. How did that play out for you? Yeah, well, so I got into this company and it was a sort of um, very entrepreneurial leadership development, experiential training company. It was pretty wild west. Um, and we are in Christchurch, entrepreneurial CEO and um, he was good at sales. So he would just sell to these companies and then I would be at the front of the room with all these people. 
And basically, my goal at that time was just become an expert, like just learn everything, read every book, listen to every guru, you know, get their stories, take it all in, get the expertise. So if someone asks you a question, you can answer with a good answer, have, you know, it's copying sort of like what do speakers do, what a, you know, that sort of thing. So I did that for a while and I was good enough, had a few painful experiences where I wasn't good enough. Um, but I was just sort of improving rapidly. It was very uncomfortable. I remember it being very uncomfortable because you always needed a, a friendly group. And if you didn't, um, and I was doing it in Christchurch, New Zealand, where they're pretty um, sceptical. And so it's very good training, actually. You know, you talked about making things practical. I think that's where I learned it because when I didn't do that there, it was very painful. Mm-hmm. And they let me know it. Um, and so that, yeah, so that's what I was like, just trying to be the expert. And then eventually I sort of, I ended up, I got better and better really. And I sort of got beyond this, sort of had this need still to be the expert, but I ended up in Dubai. I was working over there. Me and my wife went over and I started looking at the work I was doing and cancer was always on my mind. Um, cause it had come back again by that stage. Um, so I had it in my liver. And so I was very much like, you don't know how long you've got. You don't know how long you've got. Don't, don't waste your time. Um, if you're doing stuff and you're on the wrong track, stop. Find the right track. Mm. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. And, um, and I was looking at the leadership development and I was going, it's sort of good. But when I follow up with leaders later, they haven't really changed. It's you not know, speaking. They, yeah, they, they gave good marks on the day. They said it was great. And they said, you know, you're good. But it hadn't really worked. And I just thought, don't waste your life. Um, if you want to do this, do it properly. How are you going to do this properly? And I thought, I'm going to go study. I want to study, like, how do you do this work? Well, but where shall I go? I thought, I'll go to Dubai College. It's a college, you know, over there. That would be good. But I had this friend um, from earlier in my life back in Christchurch, and he was an entrepreneur. And he used to say, when you've got to make a big decision, ask yourself, why not the best? I thought, why not the best? I love that. I thought, where's the best? I thought, it's it's probably one of the, you know, maybe it's Oxford or Cambridge or maybe it's Harvard. It's probably Harvard, America. I think America's probably the best place to go. To. They've got seemed to have the best people. And I thought, well, I'm never going to get in there. And have, But my friend always used to say, look, they can only say no and you're in the same spot you are now. So what does it matter? So I was like, he's right. So I applied and then I got in. I was like, oh, here we go. Mm. So I went off to Harvard to study over there and Robert Keegan, you know, was doing his stuff and there was other very interesting people. So I was able to like get a quite an intense download of all this stuff. Um, I started to realize it's not all about expertise. That started to dawn on me. Um, but I didn't quite know what it was about yet, but I could just feel something shifting for me over there. Mm-hmm. So w- what answer did you get to around what is it about? This work, well, <laughs> you know, given the topic, um, it keeps changing. So uh-huh. at certain times, you know, it is about being the expert. And that was actually entirely appropriate. Like that was the right thing to do. Previously, I've been offering all my skills and I didn't have any. So it was actually a really good thing to go and try and get some expertise um, and develop them into something. Um, Once I got over there, 
Um, Starting to see. Um, <laughs> well, one one of my challenges was, I, I mean, I was learning it, but I was my next problem was I'm gonna have to go home soon. Like it went really quick. I was doing my masters, it went fast, and I was like, "Geez, I looked at my watch. I got to go home in two months. I don't have a visa." Um, so I thought, "How am I going to stay here?" So I made up this. Um, I looked at the curriculum. You could make up a re research thesis, basically, um, and get us one of the professors to sponsor you. So I got um, Daniel Wilson to sponsor me, and he's at Project Zero. And I went, I wrote a list of who's all the people I'd like to interview in America who are doing amazing stuff. I wrote this list, and then I wrote to them and said, I'm doing this Harvard Research Project, so I interview you. And they all said, yes. I was like, that's unbelievable. So I interviewed all these people, and then I wrote it up for Daniel as my thesis. He probably didn't even read it. I don't think he cared. Um, and then, but I interviewed people from the Center for Creative Leadership, and they said, ah, what are you doing next year? I said, I don't know. So they said, come and speak to us. So I went down there and got a job at CCL in Colorado. And that was a huge awakening. You know, where things went next was basically seeing how CCL does it, which was completely different than anything I'd ever done at a scale, which was different. So that was a huge eye-opener to see what it looks like when done really well. Mm-hmm. And and that kind of brings me back to a question I was holding when you decided that you needed more than the expertise because, you know, leaders were giving the positive feedback at the end of a workshop or a course, but you were not really seeing maybe the change you were hoping. What is yeah. the change you were hoping and how, yeah, what have you learned about the different way to creating that change um, with your work with CCL and then everything else that you've done after, which I'd love to dive into as well. But what was the change? What was the what were you looking for to be able to feel like, yep, I'm making an impact. This is purposeful. This is meaningful. Certainly, um, a change in leaders' ability to handle the problems they had, to be able to handle them in different ways, um, to have some flexibility, to think about them differently, act differently, because they were sort of. They they were dealing with problems that come and do it, you know, program with me, and then they'd go back out and they'd sort of do it the same way. And they were still just as stuck, you know. And I guess from my studies, I started to see, ah, it got the language. It's an adaptive challenge they've got. It's not a technical problem, actually. And up until that point, I I didn't know that language, but probably I was helping them, you know. In my mind, looking back, I started to think, ah, it was very horizontal development. It was like teach them some skills and information, some knowledge. But they actually need to grow beyond that and start to see it in a bigger, different way, um, such that they outgrew the problem. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's the shift, is them starting to be different, act different, think different, feel differently about things. And that mm -hmm. wasn't previously. Yeah. And I think I think this uh, while this idea of adaptive challenges is being spoken about more and more, it's still something that I don't think is yet like the in the common vernacular. Yeah. Like, would you want to maybe share a bit about how what your understanding is of of this differentness and and why you know um, dealing with adaptive challenges actually requires a different. It's not enough to learn a skill or have the technical expertise to be able to. 
to yeah. find your way through an adaptive challenge. Yeah. Yeah, so um, adaptive challenges, at least as I became aware of them, was largely through Ronald Heifetz, who's um, at Harvard Kennedy School. And he he's written, seems to be the best atlas. Um, and the idea is that there's two types of challenges a leader might face, technical challenges and adaptive challenges. And technical challenges are ones where there's a known answer. Um, and if you study it enough, it might be really hard, but if you study it enough, you can learn the answer, follow the techniques and get a good outcome, which could be flying a plane, could be doing surgery, could be lots of difficult things. Those are technical challenges to be overcome. And the problem is many leaders see everything as a technical problem uh, that can be solved, but many of them are adaptive, that the leader themselves needs to adapt, adapt change, evolve in order to um, solve or navigate the problem. And they're much thornier. It's hard to know the answer before you've started. Sometimes the answers just emerge, but generally it requires, the, I think Robert Keegan says this, that you don't solve the problem, the problem solves you. I love that saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is a very interesting one that while working on the problem, you get solved. Your assumptions get changed. Mm -hmm. Leaders, um, but it's pretty uncomfortable for most leaders. They don't, they don't like that. Um, they want a simpler fix. And so this is the challenge for many leaders these days is more and more and more problems are adaptive ones and fewer and fewer are technical challenges. Yeah. So then we are kind of, what we're saying here is that to solve an adaptive challenge, there's some sort of transformative growth that has to happen within you. And I believe it's also Kagan who says something around um, that growth is all about looking at things that before you were looking through. Yes. Looking at your own mindset instead of kind of being subject to your own mindset, being prisoner of your own mindset. And yeah. I was curious how, what your lived experience of that has been? Like, could you feel that shift within you of being able to look at things that were before lenses you were looking through um, and how that might have impacted your work and how, where you decided to take it? Yeah. Um, that's, always happening I think for everyone and it, be it became obvious to me through you know big experiences like getting cancer I can look back and see that me who was thinking about the problem in a certain way but I couldn't see that at the time um, so it's it's sort of like you just step back and then I can see me at CCL for the first time trying to be competent, um, trying to fit in, trying to do all that. And then stepping back, I was able to grow and go beyond that and just see the different stages. But it's hard to see the stage and mindset you're in now until later, you know, that you are subject to that at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I found the theory very helpful because um, it makes visible what's happening. Uh, but I do note leaders can make progress without necessarily knowing the theory if they just intuitively, I see a lot of them intuitively do this well, mm -hmm. um, but I see many of them not do it well at the same yeah. time, get very stuck for long periods of time. Yeah. 
did did that awareness of some of them doing well and some of them not doing it well kind of inform your kind of choice to then go and and try to unpack? Because I feel like what you've done when I first came across your work, I, it was such for me as a facilitator coming into research. It was such a beautiful translation of what the kinds of conditions we can create in a learning experience to almost facilitate that uh, adult development process. Um, and I'd love you to speak to that a little bit about the the heat experiences and what that means and the colliding perspectives and then the reflection, which are the three big things I know you've, you've made visible for people then designing learning experiences. How did you come to to be interested in in the architecture of learning experiences? Was it connected to this need to maybe create more effective learning environments, or was there something else at play as well? Yes, that and um, after I wrote that paper um, for my at my masters, I'll put it in the I'll I'll put it in the episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wrote that, and then when I went to CCL. Um, John McGuire, who was one of the people I interviewed and became a mentor, he said, when are you going to publish that? And I said, well, I'm not. Uh, and he said, you should publish it through CCL. And I said, oh, I don't really want to. It wasn't like written for that. It's not very good. Um, so and that I was your Harvard that. study, actually, the paper. That's All right. right. I didn't yes. know that. So I didn't want to. But every time I saw him, he would badger me about it. And I felt a bit embarrassed by it because I didn't think it was very good. He kept badgering me. And then eventually I said, okay. And so I gave it to CCL Publishing and they put it out. And then I got all these emails from people around the world saying, that's exactly what I was thinking, but I didn't have the language for it or, you know, the research and blah, blah, blah. I said, ah, that was actually a bigger half of me that um, there's something sort of almost in the consciousness of, I don't know, society at certain times. And, you might be able to tap into it because other people are, are feeling it and experiencing it as well. And you might be able to write about it in a way that isn't completely yours. Like it's just something which is out there, but you describe it and others yeah. go, yes, that. Channel that's... something in the zeitgeist in a sense. Yeah, I think yeah. so. So it wasn't exactly mine. It didn't feel like I was just picking up the same thing lots of people around the world were. And anyway, so I wrote that. That went out. And anyone said, yes, how do you do this stuff in practice? That's what everyone asked me, all these people writing. And I was like, yeah, it's a good question. And what I realized was a lot of the researchers were very good at the what is adult development. They're very good at the why, what does it matter? And here's how we measure it. Not many, uh, I mean, they weren't great at how because that wasn't their thing. They didn't have to do that. And they had some stuff and they'd done some consulting, but I didn't think that was their major focus. And therefore, the how was quite abstract, quite academic, all of that. So I thought, okay, I really, really want to work out the how. So um, at CCL for the seven or eight years I was there, that's all I really thought about and did was what is the how. And so I did more interviews with practitioners um, and I started and I, you know, at CCL and outside of CCL and I started to see, ah, there's all these different tools, all these different methods but they seem to fall into these three different areas. One is around having heat experience, which CCL had already worked out on their lessons of experience research. Um, so these heat experiences were big, challenging, overwhelming, uncomfortable, first-time experiences. 
Um, but then there was these colliding perspectives. You needed people who were going to think differently from you, challenge you, open you up to different ways of thinking, um, collide with your worldview. And then you need to deeply reflect on the experiences you're having, the perspectives you're getting, but also the way you are making sense of your challenges to, to um, deconstruct, do I actually need to update um, the way I'm thinking about things? Mm -hmm. And those three things came together, people seemed to grow well. Have you, have you found contexts where you, you can have a heat experience? You might have the colliding perspective, but reflection doesn't happen. Yeah, uh, that seems to mostly be what happens for people. Um, they don't, I mean, I think that's probably the area that leaders seem to be the weakest in. Um, I'm surprised how many leaders say, um, like, how do you reflect? That. That, I don't know. That always strikes me as a surprising question. They don't know what to do. And like really smart people who I know, they don't know what to think about. Um, so I find that quite interesting. So yeah, and I mean, I've just been researching burnout. Um, and one of the patterns we've seen is these people, they burn out, they quit their jobs, they take six months off, then they go back to work and they go through exactly the same process they went through last time and burn out again. And then they leave and go back to a new company and the same thing. And when I was interviewing them, I'm just like, you could see in this third story, I could see it's happening again. You And they could not see the pattern. It was so obvious. Mm -hmm. um, seeing there was a lack of reflection on what had happened. Yeah. What. So what What do you, yeah, what, what have you learned about this reflective piece? What? What prevents it? What enables it? Mm. What, where are you at? You might be in the process of unpacking it, perhaps. But um, just curious where. Yeah. Because I'm finding I'm finding it in in my own work, and we were having this little chat before we started the recording. That one little nugget that came out of my own research was that there's um, emotions are involved in that reflection and those emotions usually are very unpleasant emotions because when you've got those colliding perspectives something in your worldview is challenged and that comes with pain with emotional pain like fear and anxiety and confusion and even grief for having lost some something precious so mm -hmm. then what I found was that the people who engaged with those emotions with curiosity and considered them an opportunity for growth rather than a threat or a sign that something was terribly wrong, those were the people who tended to shift into that and be genuinely able to reflect. So I was curious if, if yeah, that might be consistent in any way with some of the findings you've come across, particularly in your work on burnout um, and how people deal with that. Hmm. That's I really like what you pointed out there from your research. It just feels so true. Um, from a personal perspective, I can see it in my own story. First time when I got sick, I just I just ignored it. Um, I didn't dive in at all. I just tried to pretend nothing had happened. Um What did you not dive into, Nick? Uh that it had even happened to me. Uh, for one, uh, that anything was different or that I needed to do anything different. <laughs> it's just remarkable. Um, yeah, I just, nothing. I just didn't want to go there. 
And I wonder, you know, I wonder, was it too painful to think about? Because um, I don't remember sitting there going, this is so painful. I remember just going, just move on, just move on, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and then the second time, I think this is consistent with what we saw in the burnout um, conversations is, I think there was a realisation like, that didn't work. Like, that's the wrong path. It, it does intrigue me a little bit, though, like, um, to your point around what you discovered, like, seems like it, there's a, a fine line between which direction you might go. Like, I was the same person. One time I just went this path. One time I went this path. They would end up being radically different paths. Um, but it's not clear to me, like, what was the delineating thing? If I think about the the people we're interviewing now, um, I think it's to do with pain. Um, them thinking it, it would be more painful um, to go down the previous path than to go in this new path. It might take more effort. Um, I've been reading a lot about the brain, actually, and they talk about um, that the brain's very good at predicting what will happen if. And it, it has these prediction errors, which it picks up. If you do a certain behavior and get a different response than you anticipated, your brain will update to say, don't do that again, do this path. And so I think um, that's quite a reflective activity, or if you bring consciousness to it, you can do that a lot more effectively. Otherwise, you can be destined just to keep repeating experiences. Mm -hmm. So just to, to kind of recap my understanding of what you're saying, it's almost like you're choosing between two different flavors of pain. Almost get to the point where it's so unbearably painful to not change that the potential pain of change becomes like, yeah, I'll, I'll it's less than the other pain. So then... That's the more logical path almost. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, it's not always pain. It wasn't my circumstance. It wasn't some of these other people. Um, but it might be you just think it's going to be a happier path, this other one. Um, but, it, you know, it makes me think a lot about the conditions we can create in leadership development. Because basically, many people are doing it with no scaffolding and no support. Um, no one's help, helping them. Uh, a lot of people we interviewed, they couldn't change until they got a coach or a therapist. And the reason was in the burnout, because they just kept repeating the same thing they'd done last time. They only had like a certain number of um, pathways they could think of. And they just kept doing the same thing over and over. And it wasn't until a therapist or a coach said, how about this? What about this? This is what has worked for other people. Why are you choosing to do it that way? That it almost knocked them out of the groove they are in, yeah. and which is colliding perspectives, and they could find some new pathways to go. So it's hard to do on your own. Yeah, um, because you'll, you're missing that colliding perspective that an objective uh, person who kind of puts a mirror in front of you, like a coach, like a therapist, can bring, right? Is that right? Yeah. I think a lot of us, we've got, we've got like, I can see three paths from where I am at the moment. And the therapist or coach can go, here are eight more that you haven't tried. And you go, ah, can I do that? Yes, you can do that. This is what other people who have been in your situation have done. And they do it and they go, ah, 
this works better. And they're away again. And there's movement and there's adaption. Um, so there's real value, I think, in having someone else. But a lot of leaders, they don't want to ask for help. It goes against their identity. And we saw that over and over in the interviews. Um, that's why they never did, because that's not who I am. I don't need help. Yeah. There was uh, this reminds me of uh, of a comment um, a very senior leader in the government space. Uh, I worked with a group of leaders recently, and and this person um, was commenting on why do we even need to do all of this inner work? Like this feels so uncomfortable and diving in your emotions and your thoughts and your beliefs and all of that stuff and he was reflecting on you know my grandparents had a farm and it was during the war and they survived and like they didn't do all of this work so this like sparked a really interesting conversation in the room about the complexity of the decisions and of the the life decisions you have to make as a leader nowadays versus the survival extremely difficult context our grandparents have been through but with much simpler kind of choices that were day-to-day survival choices and and kind of the, the inner space you need to make wise decisions that impact potentially thousands of other people mm-hmm. um and and how the hardship of context does not guarantee the need for growth but the complexity does um yeah i, I found it very intriguing I mean, it's very interesting, these conversations with leaders and how they approach it. Do they see the need for it? Do they see the value? I mean, I think there's a lot to learn from them. Um, and they're all different. And the sceptical ones, I think, are quite, there's a lot to learn from them, I feel. I always do. So, yeah, those conversations are very interesting. They provide the colliding perspectives, I think. That's what I've come, how I've come to see it in the room when I'm holding space. That when you've got the leader who goes, why are we even doing this in the first place? It creates a discomfort, a space of discomfort that if you handle with openness, it leads always really insightful conversations. Yes. Versus everybody agreeing and being a convert and going, yes, this is the exact work we need to be doing. Yeah. It makes me think of, um, um, I'm not sure if it's Heifetz or um, Wilbur would talk about that everyone has an important part of the truth, but it's just partial. We tend to think I have all of it, but it's not. And so, you know, everyone's got different nuggets of the truth. And so, you know, that guy saying that, has some essence of truth in it, but just not the whole truth. And so I think the more you can surface those things and let that be okay for people to um, bring those conversations into the room without the facilitator panicking and try to shut it down, I think that creates a lot of value. Value. So what? How does this? Uh, how has the discovery of these mechanisms kind of led you to? I know that you're focusing a lot of your work now on supporting others to create these learning spaces, um, and you've got this project that I'm actually so excited about to see come into the world: the Vertical Development Incubator or Vertical Leadership Incubator. I need to uh, make sure I'm. Yeah, for me, it's like it's a Vertical Development Incubator in my in my head. But what's the goal with that? What, uh, um, how, how are you supporting people to create these learning experiences and what are you learning from doing that? Yeah. Um, well, it came out of, 
you know, lots of people saying, how do you do this? How do you do this? So at CCL, I spent a lot of time learning along with others who were there. And um, then I was just like, well, I mean, I can do a bit. I'll do what I can do. But um, it's often better if others can also be good at this and develop them. Um, and at the same time, I came across a guy, who, a Kiwi guy who was in Boston, Carl Sanders Edwards, and he was a technologist and he's in leadership development. So we partnered up and we said, what? we looked at all the stuff which was out there and we said, what would we like to attend? Like, what would we, you know, pay some money and give some days to? And we said, uh, I don't think it's really like an accreditation thing. There's good ones out there and, and they're great. Keep doing those. But it's not what we wanted to create. We were keen um, to be able to be in a room with other people who were also doing work in this field. Um, and we wanted to like build things. And one of the things I really enjoyed in the US was these incubators. They have them in Silicon Valley and other places. And it's and I'd read some books on them. Um, you come along with your startup idea. I want to build some sort of app or software thing or whatever, food delivery thing. And you're in this incubator with 30, 40 other people who are also building their businesses. And rather than like just get taught, you build, like build your business. That's the way you'll learn best, build your business. And there's these different experts in the room, mentors, and they're going to give you some coaching, give you some guidance. You're going to learn from the other people in the room, see what businesses they're building. And it'll be a sort of process over four months. And I went, that's awesome. Like, and you get something done while you're there, while you're learning, get taught some stuff, apply it. And I thought that's that's a really good model. And so we said, let's do a vertical leadership incubator where practitioners can come along. You're not going to sit there and listen to us the whole time. Um, you're going to design an offering for your company, for your clients, for your, you can come along with a program or something you've already got and add vertical elements into it, help you to do that. Or it can be come along with nothing, clean slate, and you build something from the ground up. So we said, will anyone come to this? <laughs> and we weren't quite sure. So we ran one in Austin where I was living and they came and it was like, whoa, that worked really well. And then we just kept going. And then we realized companies would host it. Um, Boeing said, we'll host. And Home Depot said, we'll host. And, and we did our last one at Google last year. Um, and so that's what we've been doing. And so this year we're doing one in London, one in Melbourne, and one in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's that's what it's been and just keeps building and growing. What have you learned from doing it so far? What have you learned from the journeys of people coming and test driving their ideas for turning those principles we spoke about into practice in their own contexts and then going out and piloting and testing and... Yeah, um, a lot of the people run the same mistake which I made when I first started doing this is they go out and they start telling everyone all about vertical development and there's these stages and da da da, -da it's this and da, da And some people get it and go, oh, interesting. And then some people go, I disagree and it gets into a big debate and it's often frustrating. Um, and what I learned from doing this work is even if you get really good at explaining it, you better not to. Give people an experience and help them just stumble over their own truth of this. And so that's one thing we learned is the transformation cards, which uh, Global Leadership Associates, they created. Those are really good. Them and CCL created those. Um, using an assessment, like 
we use Vertical Mindset Indicator, which is ours. Uh, I know you've got one. There's various different good ones out there. Give it When you give people an assessment and then they just unpack it, they're like, ah, right. And they can explain to you what all of this stuff is. Um, that's a big lesson many people have had and we've seen over and over again. Second is different organizations have different levels of readiness. Um, some are ready for a full-blown program where you speak about this stuff and some are really not. Um, and you can go in with interventions which will work, but it really helps to diagnose the organization's readiness first um, and then create something which matches the readiness of the organization. I think that's been a big lesson of, for us and many others who have gone through the incubator. Mm-hmm. I, I am curious to uh, to test a, a hypothesis I'm, I'm holding well, with you. Um, ever since I, I started uh, doing my first coach training program almost a decade ago, I had this almost obsessive idea that um, maybe success in our profession, and when I say our profession, I mean facilitating, coaching, holding learning spaces for people, is to make yourself redundant. Mm-hmm. I really believe that if I can help train uh, leaders, which was my focus, training leaders to be coaches and take coaching in their own environments instead of, you know, quitting their jobs and becoming independent coaches. Mm. I trusted that there can be more impact if these learning processes are driven from the inside out. Yeah. Um, and this uh, outcome of making myself redundant, I don't really feel like or worry I, I will be out of work for real, but I feel like holding that as a thought helps me kind of get less attached to me doing the work and more creative about how do I enable others to do the work for themselves and they might do it in different ways. So when I when I saw the incubator, I was, ah, Nick's doing it. Um, this, this, this feels like, you know, doing the work of making ourselves redundant in a mm. good positive way. Uh, and I'm maybe assuming a lot here, but I'm curious if You've seen impact from, you know, enabling people because you're giving away your knowledge. You're really supporting people to take this work and and run with it, run with it in their own contexts. And they might or might not need support. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what what's your take on that? Yeah, um, I think, you know, even the phrase giving away your knowledge is an interesting one in our field um, because I do see a lot of people out there and it's my knowledge. Um, yeah, yeah. And I want to... And, you know, when I think about where I learned it from, you know, I think the previous generation of researchers would say it's not your knowledge. Not, not our knowledge, that's true. Um, and it wasn't even theirs. You know, they did unpack and discover some things. So I quite like that about this field is the hard part I learned in this field is um, is not coming up with ideas. It is can you get the ideas to spread? And the answer is most of the time, no. <laughs> it's it's very hard um, to get ideas and get them in the right way where they stick and they spread. And so I I just find that a worthy challenge. If you think you're onto something which is valuable, can you get them to spread? Can you get them out there? Don't worry too much about whether someone references you or not, or or if you get paid for it, or because um, if you're spreading good ideas, you will get paid by someone. It might not be that person <laughs> who took it and copy and pasted it and put their name on it. 
it's just I think you just got to relax about that stuff anyway not that that's what you were saying but it's just something. well it was part of what I was saying because I think there's a developmental opportunity for people doing this work to almost challenge themselves to think in this way is it us doing the work yeah. um, or holding the expertise let's say not not the knowledge because I know there are so many giants upon whose shoulders we're all sitting and to your point in turn they learned it from other people and built on this body of work but yeah like that letting go what does it take to let go and kind of really genuinely let people take this work and run with it and do it in their own way and trust as you say you'll get paid somehow the energy will come back yeah what's the impact what's the impact of doing that um it's good but it's also a bit of a luxury probably um i I don't know. I did have that attitude right from the start, but I looked. I looked at who'd done good stuff, and I saw they were generous. And I thought, I think that's the way to go because I also saw people who were quite scarce, and they they always stayed scarce. The ones who were generous seemed to it became easy because that generosity just seemed to keep coming back, and they were relaxed about it, and people could feel they were relaxed about it. I saw people sitting on this great idea they've got and I looked and I went I don't even think that's a very good idea but they they spent too long holding on um too tight they would have been better just to let it out and let it out um so I think that was healthy and plus it's sort of done quite a bit of standing up in front of the room and being the person and for a period of time that was very enjoyable to me and looking back now talking about looking back through lenses there was probably more ego in that than I recognized at the time. I enjoyed being at the front of the room and people saying, Nick, you're really good at this. And, you know, that sort of thing. And that doesn't feel very important now. Um, I don't get an emotional payoff out of that so much, like people saying a nice thing like that. Um, but watching things grow and spread without me being there, um, I find very gratifying that stuff can be happening out in the world from seeds that I've planted, but I don't have to be doing it. That feels healthy. And seeing other people taking things and using them and all that, that feels good now, which I think is just, um, we change over time. And it's, I also think it's sort of appropriate, you know, what, what I or you or others were feeling at different stages in our career, you have different phases, you know, just developmentally you have different phases and it wasn't wrong. It was just, that's where you were. Do it well. Be the expert for a while and then don't get stuck there. Just keep evolving. So yep. that always to me just seems like you evolve um, if you're lucky. Mm. I love that. I love the the like the humbleness of bringing luck into it. As I, I also share that view that there is um, there is choice, but there's also an element of luck of you know having the right people come into your life or giving you the right opportunity at the right time. Mm. Uh, and then there's also you the you making the choice of taking that opportunity. So what yeah. what excites you at this point most about the work you're doing, Nick? What do you feel? Um, and coming back to where we started around, you know, your your um, awareness of impact and purpose and what's this for? Kind of that that question that you started with when when you really started to challenge the way you were seeing the world uh, mm. many years ago. Where are you at around that question? What's the answer you're giving yourself at the moment then? Um, yeah, I do think about that actually quite a bit, like what really matters. Um, 
And I think, yeah, it's been an evolving one. Like what really matters at that time, I I hadn't no kids or anything like that. So what mattered was <laughs> me and what could I contribute? And that was the right answer, I think, at that time. That launched me in just the right direction. Um, now I do have kids. Um, and so what matters is sort of ironically smaller, like that little group, that little family group matters. And yet I also wouldn't like to think that's all that matters. Um, I do you know, see people saying it's, it's all family, you know, it's all family. I just feel like not for me, I don't think. It is family and it's it's got to be more. Um, so it's still the contribution, but doing it in the right layers. It feels like there's layers of groups who matter. Um, and it's not just New Zealanders, for example. Um, mm -hmm. no, it's got to go beyond that to, to more people. Um, so still contribution, I think, is a good measure. And it's easy to get sidetracked by other things. So to keep going back to that seems to be a really healthy way to do things. What I'm excited about um, in relation to this work is I'd really like it uh, still pretty small, still pretty niche. Been around quite a while, but I used to think, why don't more people know about this? Like, why isn't everyone talking about it? So a bit of my work has been, how do you make it more accessible? Um, but even that, it's still pretty small. One of the things I've been thinking about as I've done this research around how do you perform and grow and not burn out, because that seemed to be the problem I was seeing during the pandemic. So I'm doing research on that with a group of people. And I've just seen... Uh, one, there's all these people suffering and burning out and unhappy with the way work is. And two, when we interviewed, how did they get out of this? Ultimately, what they did, the path out was growth. And I was like, that's really interesting. Because for a long time, I and many others have been over here doing vertical development, do this, do this, do this. It started to get me thinking, is it a solution without a problem? Um, because uh -huh. when, when I've... Part of the reason I don't think it was taken up because it wasn't hooked to a problem people... A real problem people had. Yeah, a visceral problem. And we, you know, connected it to complexity. And so HR people go, hey, we could buy that. Our leaders are in complexity. And so that was good. But I didn't see the leaders walking around going, I have a complexity problem. I have a complexity <laughs> um, but, You know, if you framed it, they could go, yeah, okay, yeah, I get the connection. Um, whereas this one around how I'm feeling... And the the path out of this being post-traumatic growth, I feel like I'm, I'm starting to feel like these things could be connected up because there is massive interest in this topic over here, the problem. And then the solution, which I think, basically what we saw is they're stuck in Achiever and they keep going round and round and round and working harder and harder. And the, pro the solution for them in their mind is work harder. And it's like, no, the solution is you've got to redefine the way grow, you grow on the inside. Um, so I'm quite excited about how might these two things, this big problem over here and this big solution over here, how might they actually connect up? Um, so I'm, Yeah. I'm, this is so intriguing, um, you saying this, because uh, this has been something that has struck me for many years, how people seem to really immerse themselves in challenging learning when they've got a real, real personal painful problem that is being solved by that growth or leaning into it. 
And I've always been challenged by the frames, the business case for something. Even when I hear that phrase, like, yes, the business will be enthralled by the business case, but the people in the room, the leaders that you're working with, or they might not be leaders, they might be just, you know, um, individual contributors. They will not be, you know, they won't light up when they hear the business case for something, but when they feel like, ah, this is going to support me to find a path out of impending burnout. Um, Even being a better parent, I found for a lot of leaders, they make connections between this work and the way they show up as parents and really powerful conversations ensue in leadership programs where we end up talking about our kids. Yes. And how we are not the wisest people that we could be in supporting their growth and then going, oh, maybe I need to do this work, not just for me, but for the parent I want to be, not just for the leader I am. So, yes. yeah, I'm loving the personal case for change you're making, Nick. Right. Well, I think um, because being a parent for that individual is the relevant and valuable challenge for them right now. Yep. And yep. the person sitting beside them, it's not. Yep. It's, I don't quite, I don't sort of like that. <laughs> here's the objective for everyone. Yes, well, here's yes. the challenge for everyone because it's, it's different for everyone. One really interesting thing we discovered in the research, we were interviewing all these people from different fields and we'd ask them about a time in your life where you grew a lot. It was one of the questions we asked. And what was really interesting is no one told us a story about a time in their life when growth was the goal. Everyone told us a story about when they were trying to perform some really difficult task. Uh, Some wanted to um, pass a test to become a Navy SEAL. Some people wanted to win a sports tournament. Some people wanted to lead a successful business transformation. They had these big things they were going after. No one was thinking about growth. They were all just trying to do the same. And in the course of this pursuit, Looking back, they said, I grew enormously. Yeah. And I and I looked at that and I went, that's quite interesting. Because <laughs> um, I thought, how do, how do I and everyone else do leadership development? Well, we focus on growth and we say, if you grow, then you will perform really well. That's sort of leadership development usually. But these people said, no, I focus on performance and then I grew. And so we end up calling this in the research, the paradox of growth. And connecting to what you were saying before is um, I was reading about this um, UCLA um, neuroscientist and he pointed out that the way we learn, we learn best when our brain is focused on something which is relevant and valuable to us. And when you get people focused on something which is relevant and valuable, their brain, their, um, their hippocampus gets flooded with oxytocin dopamine, all these different chemicals, and learning becomes very easy for them. And so this idea of getting people to focus on what is the relevant and valuable challenge in your world right now, before you do any learning stuff, I think is really important. But too often we go in with the business objectives or the something else. I just, I, I love the wisdom of that. Mm. I absolutely love it. And I'm wondering almost, and I'm, I'm uh, conscious, uh, this is, a, I feel like 10, 10 directions this conversation <laughs> would go, but also I know we'll need to to kind of bring it to an end. But I would love to he- to kind of ask you like a build up on that uh, insight from the, from the research. How would you 
So if I'm a learning designer or I'm an HR person or I'm someone in a position to create learning contexts for people, organize learning, let's say, mm. what? how would I translate that insight into something that could make a difference to how we learn, how we invite people into learning? Like what, how, what could we change in the way we extend that learning invitation to people yep. to make the most of the paradox? Yes. So the neuroscientist, um, he says what they did experiments. This is what they did. I don't think this is the best way to do it, but it gives us a clue. He said um, what they did in the study is they started by getting people just to focus for five minutes on their values. What are your most important values? Write them down. Why are they important? Blah, 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 blah. And that got people into the state. Their brains were flooded. And then they taught them some stuff. And their learning of what was taught was much better than when they went straight into learning with other groups. So it's like, ah, that's a clue. Um, what I've been doing and finding very effective, rather than values, um, getting people just to do what you said. The, the rule sort of for me now is don't start teaching anything or don't start delivering anything until you've given people three to five minutes to think about what is most important to them at the moment. And... What are the challenges you're facing? Why are they important? What do you care most about? What are your biggest priorities? It doesn't matter if it connects with what you're about to do with them. It only matters that they're getting into a very rich learning state where their brain will be very sticky. So that's what I do a lot now, which is not what I used to do. It's not what I see most facilitators do. They're like, okay, here we go. This is this is VUCA. The, this is, you know, we're going to do Kinevin. We're going to do this and that. And they go too fast. Slow down and let people's brains just get flooded with the right hormones. That's definitely an actionable insight. Mm. I've, I've got a, a workshop coming next week um, in which I'm going to test this out. Yeah. It, it just feels so right to me. Um, right. I love I love how it's coming out of the data in a way where you go, yep, okay, we also have the data to back this up. So then, um, but then would that almost cut away um, or force us to face the irrelevant stuff we might be doing in the learning context? Like you can't really, you can't really lie to yourself to say, you know, we're doing this amazing program. We haven't really checked if people want it or need it or, but we're going to, do it because if you ask people to think of the stuff that's truly, truly challenging for them and matters to them now, then you've mm. got to invite them into relevant learning for that, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good challenge for us. It makes us think about, is this relevant for people? Yeah. Um, and too often we probably do stuff which is really interesting to us, not that relevant to them. That's the risk. But um, it doesn't have to have perfect fit, um, I've discovered. It's just they appreciate the chance to think about what matters to them. And you don't need to orchestrate all the connections. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about parenting and the person beside me is thinking about this new role I'm in and it's so hard. Um, their brains are, are now attuned to make connections to what happens next. So you don't need to do all that work. They Let them do the work. Yeah, so you can trust people then extracting the relevant learning for them that then matches that context that they thought about. 
they'll be in a much better state to be able to do that if you don't give them anything first where they start thinking about what are all the things which I'm struggling with. Remember, they're going to think about things I don't have solutions to yet. I'm really stuck in this new role. There are 50 different things I'm grappling with that I don't know how to solve. And then you're going to give them some things. Their brain will start to make connections. Yeah. So one last question for you, Nick. So grateful for all the wisdom. This is uh, so much food for thought for me and hoping it'll be food for thought for the people listening to us, to our conversation. What What's your highest hope for your work, our work? Like, what do you see heading? Well, I guess interesting, given what we've just been talking about, I think that it continually becomes more relevant and valuable as in we find a way to make the linkages more and more to everyday people and their work and lives. Um, don't, if we've got good solutions to offer, don't let them be too discreet, too covered over in academic language or the wrong language. Um, make things very accessible so it can spread um, and reach people so they can use it. That's what I'd really like to keep doing. But to do that, I mean, going back to what I said at the start about myself, you've got to have something valuable to offer as well. So it's not enough just to say it's this. People might say, actually, that's not that interesting. So to keep discovering what is what is the pain point for people, what is their need, and what are relevant and valuable solutions. And that might just be the next 10 or 20 years continuing to create things um, and not just saying we've already got it all. We don't. Yeah, we absolutely don't. I love the more the more I, I invite people into these conversations and do this work myself, the more I understand everybody's on the journey. Nobody's arrived. Um, mm. and there's a mm. thrill in that. There's, yeah, there's so much more to learn. Um, yeah, yes. Deep gratitude, Nick, for uh, putting another piece of the puzzle, uh, of the learning puzzle together for me and, and for us. And I'm super excited to see where you take your work next. Thank you, Alice. It's been great to meet and to talk. And uh, this is our first time, even though we've both been reading each other's stuff. So thanks for the invite. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for accepting it, Nick. It is very hard for me to choose my favorite part of this conversation and um, as you listen to it I'll be very curious what has stood out for you what are you taking away for your own life and your own professional journey from Nick's personal and professional story a few things that have stuck with me are around the importance of walking the talk and um really leaning into the hard lessons that life brings our way. If uh, anything, I believe Nick's story is a bit of a cautionary tale around how uh, rejecting a lesson when it's presented to us does not really help us move forward. And quite often the, the lesson returns in some form or another. So we might as well um, look out for these lessons in our life and meet discomfort with if not openness, at least a bit of curiosity. 
there might be some gold to find in the hardest moments. I've also been inspired by Nick's spirit of generosity and sharing and his message around allowing the energy and the learning to reach more people by offering our knowledge and inviting others into the learning without necessarily expecting a return on investment right away. I'm a big believer in this idea. And as I've said elsewhere and in this conversation too, I think ultimately our mission as facilitators, coaches, or people who simply hold space for other people's learning is to make ourselves redundant, is to empower the people whose learning we're supporting to owning that learning fully and being able to do it without us. So I have absolutely loved Nick's way of living that and uh, walking that talk. And finally, I've loved his perspectives on how to create environments where learning sticks, where people's brains are put in a state that helps them absorb and make the, le- the learning relevant for their own contexts. I think there's much to be learned from that uh, for all of us who are in facilitating uh, roles in any shape or form. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that people will experiment with his suggestions and share their own insights as they do. I hope you've enjoyed this at least as much as I have. Um, check out the show notes for resources around Nick's published work and his current projects. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on our next conversation in July. Until then... Stay awake, stay wise, and stay kind.